guest today describes himself as a global security expert who draws on psychological insights to help you master the art of social engineering, also known as human hacking. He's the author of Human Hacking, helping people to make friends, influence people, and leave them feeling better for having met you by being more empathetic, generous, and kind. He's a pioneer in the field of social engineering, and he specializes in understanding how malicious hackers exploit principles of human communication to access information and resources through manipulation and deceit. Now, he shows you how to use social engineering as a force for good to help you regain your confidence and control. Chris, you're very welcome to the show. What does human hacking mean to you, and how is it relevant in the world of sales? Yeah, that's a big question. So I have to answer it in two parts. First, um, what it used to mean solely was just understanding how people get scammed. How do they get duped into doing something they shouldn't do? Understanding that as a security professional to help people stay protected. But over the decade and a half plus I've been doing this, that's altered to your wonderful introduction to understanding that these very same skills can be used every day in life with everyday people, your family, your friends, sales, all of that, to not be devious, but to understand how you can use those very same principles to get things you want out of people, to get them to do things, but by doing it with empathy and compassion. Okay, let's go back to the cyber side okay. for a moment, because we're all susceptible to those emails that come out that try to get your details and they seem to get more sophisticated as they go along. That said, parallel with that is sometimes you get them and you, you get the feeling that how could anybody fall for this? What is it that they're doing that really taps into that system that overrides, I guess, our, our, our better nature, our better uh, higher level intelligence and causes us to engage with them? Yeah, I, I love that question, by the way, uh, because for me, when I first started realizing what social engineering was, we're going back maybe now 17, 18 years there wasn't anyone really researching it. So it just seemed like magic. You know, like you did this thing and someone gave me a password and I'm like, wow, that was cool. And I had that very same question that you just asked, which was, I need to know how, how did that work? Like what, what was the, the psychology behind that that made that person do the thing? And the more I researched, I found out there's so many, I could talk to you for hours, but let me give you two of the top ones. Uh, a, a man named Dr. Paul Zak, he did research into something called oxytocin. He wrote a book called The Moral Molecule. Amazing book. I, I, uh, I, I've seen the, it's on YouTube. It's a wonderful video. Wonderful. And that, that. I'll put a link to it. It's really good. He's a genius too. I mean, because so many researchers ignored oxytocin and he said, no, I'm going to look into this. And what he found is that our brains release oxytocin more when you feel that you are trusted not when you feel trust. So if I were to say to you, listen, Paul, I'm going to tell you and your listener something I haven't told anyone else. And you believe me. Okay. You believe me. And then I do it. And it's true. Your brain releases oxytocin and I'm your dealer. Now you feel good about me. And that lasts for as long as our relationship lasts, as long as I don't ruin it. So that's study number one, right? So when scammers email you some big deal, some big secret, you could be a part of this. Your brain wants to trust that person and then takes an action. The, the second was a study done by a researcher named Dr. Daniel Goleman. Uh, he wrote the book, Emotional Intelligence, Emotional IQ. And in that book, he coined the phrase amygdala hijacking. So our amygdala are these two uh, small walnut-sized pieces of gray matter in our brain. 
and their purpose is to control all the, um, the initial processing of external stimuli. Now, we generally equate this to fear, but they process all strong emotion. So you get an email that says uh, your account was just hacked, your credit card was just used for this big order, whatever it is, click here to fix it. Um, let's use some of the older folks that get an email that say your social security is being interrupted, uh, click here for your COVID vaccine date, some, any one of those things. It triggers a strong emotional response. Your brain does not use critical thinking or logic. It only uses that amygdala hijack to make its very next decision. And then you click the link or answer the phone or do something like that. It's funny you should say that because when I ask the question is when you see some of these things, you go, how could anybody fall for that? But the ones that I have that experience with are the ones that prey on greed. Like yeah. I've got 10 million in this bank account and give me your email address and I'll give you half of it, right? That's pure greed and that's just idiotic. But the ones that you're talking about right now are all based on fear. Yeah. And I've seen several of those and I'll always kind of hover over with the mouse to see what the URL is. Yeah. And, I, and I only do that when it looks so real that I just want to double check. So it, it, it does, it does play into even yeah. as smart as you like to think you are. It's, 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 it's hijacking something. That's for sure. I love that term. It is. Hijacking. And, and I'll tell you this, I, I, in my career as a social engineer, I've sent 14 million phishing emails. My third book was on the psychology of how phishing works. I actually fell for a real phishing email. So people that say, I'll never fall for that. I'm too smart. You're lying to yourself. Yeah. And for me, it was an Amazon fish because I'm, a, I'm an Amazon junkie. I order yeah. so much stuff on Amazon. It's funny. And I got an email that said one of my recent orders wouldn't be shipped, but it was the perfect timing. It was, I was preparing for a conference. I was running late to the airport. I was stressed already. I get that email. I click the link without thinking. Instead of doing what I normally do, which is open a browser, go to amazon.com, log in, check it. I clicked on that link. And the only thing that stopped me is normally my username is in the saved in the username box, but not my password. And I noticed my username wasn't there. So I looked at the URL bar and it was like something, something.ru. And I'm like, I got, I just got like me, I, the guy who does this for a living. Mm. And that taught me like, you can't think anyone can't think I'll never fall for that. When they find your emotional trigger, whatever it is. So maybe you hate Amazon, you never order from it, then it won't work on you. But what's yours? And you don't have to say it. I'm just saying what's yours. And when you know that, if they fish you with that, you'll fall for it. Yeah. It's funny that because there's a guy here in Ireland, he'd be well-known kind of mini celebrity on TV quite a bit. And he came on radio to recently to say he, he, he got caught proper. But the funny, but it was a bank one. And the interesting thing now is the bank have employed him to do ads on their behalf to say, don't get caught like me. Yeah. yeah. But, That's uh, actually smart on the bank's part because yeah. you know you have someone who fell for it and is willing to talk about it. Yeah. Like when I, when I first fell for it, I went to my COO and I said, I'm never telling anyone this story. And he's like, dude, you got to tell everybody the story. That's, that's exactly it. And that's, <laughs> I think one is you can be the most intelligent person on the planet yep. given the right set of circumstances. Yep. Like you're rushed. You're not thinking. You're in that's a hurry. It. Boom. Uh, and I think the key thing is just to be comfortable saying, you know what? I'm just human. Got me. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's not a slight. And that's what this guy did, I think, very effectively. He actually turned it to his own advantage. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I'm curious, take me from there. 
to what you've learned in the world of influence that applies in the world of business. Yeah. So, uh, so that connection, and I love it because if we talk about just those two studies, uh, let's talk about amygdala hijacking first, because that's a harder one to apply. Uh, never would you want like in a sales environment or a business to use fear to get someone motivated to take an action for business, right? Because that's not, that's short term. So, you know, you're a life insurance salesman and you go up there and talk about how bad their family's going to be when they die. They're making a decision not based on critical thinking. That's not a real connection. That to me feels very dirty. So how can you, how can you use that? Well, again, it's finding out what someone values and then not using it negatively, but using it positively, right? So for me, I look at, uh, before I have meetings, I look at people's social media. What is it that you talk about? What is it that you value? What is it that you find important in your life? Now, if I can talk about those things and not in a way that elicits a strong negative emotion, but a good emotion, then we can have a connection. And that connection will build trust and rapport, which will make you more likely to comply with something I ask you to do. Right. So, you know, not that I'm doing this to you, but I look in your background and I see these two great older cameras. And I happen to know that one on the right is either a Nikon or a Canon uh, or on your left. I'm sorry, because uh, I had one that looked just like it. My daughter's a photographer. She has that exact camera in her bedroom on a shelf. Yeah. And if if my house was burning down, you would grab grab that one thing. This would be it. Oh, yeah. Family first, obviously. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, family, and then you, you get yeah. your family to grab that. Yeah. This was uh, this was brought back from France after the First World War. My wow. grandfather was a stretcher bearer in the army, um, and he stayed on in France after the war as a, just as as a, as a gardener in in the with the wars the War Graves Commission. And I think this was his lifeline to his family back home. He'd take pictures locally of people who he's with, you know, before social media. Uh, and this was it. So, yeah, this is, there's actually film, a roll of film in it. My son managed to get some. <laughs> Haven't got it developed yet, but uh, yeah, that's a, uh, that was what, 20, uh, actually 100 years old. Yeah. That was bought in 1921. So now think about what just happened. And we did not plan this, anyone who's watching or listening. And what I told you was a real story. I did not lie to you. My daughter is a photographer. She has that exact camera. That's all I had to tell you. And you just told me where where you got that camera. You told me a family story. You told me where it was from. You told me how you obtained it. You told me something personal about your grandfather. All this information just came to me. And all I had to do was just point out one thing and say, oh, I have that same thing. And we built a relationship. And now that wasn't manipulative. I didn't have to make you feel fear. It was a positive emotion that elicited out of you a very personal story. And because you trusted me enough with that, your brain's also saying, I trust this guy, oxytocin. Mm. So using an amygdala hijack to trigger oxytocin allows now for us to have a closer relationship. And in business and sales, that can go really far. So here's what I'd like to explore with you is the, you talk about fear and I, I, I sense a reluctance to use that as a way of influencing people. But if you look at what governments across the world are doing right now, without getting into the rights or wrongs of it, uh, people use people's motivation in terms of behavior around pandemic and around virus avoidance is all based on fear. And it has a very powerful impact on people's behavior, on many people's behavior. Now it's not on everybody, 
because fear will have different impacts on different people. I think more people are more susceptible than others. Or there may be other more complex uh, identity-related issues that may cause people to behave in a different way. But uh, I, I, I wanted to get a sense from you, was it that you don't believe in fear as a power of motivation? Or is it that you're just not comfortable with it personally? So let me answer that from two points, uh, both, both science and then personal. So uh, Dr. Goldman, Daniel Goldman's research, uh, when he issued uh, the images from his fMRI test that he did, uh, the way he did his test is they put a fMRI helmet on, on his research subjects. He gave them math problems that were difficult, but not impossible. He watched their, what parts of their brain lit up when they were solving math. And it was all those, you know, frontal um, logic, critical thinking centers. Then he triggered a strong emotion like fear in them through a video that they had to watch and listen to. Then gave them similar math problems to solve and with that same helmet on and found out that all of those critical logic centers were black and all the highly color areas were in those um, emotion centers like the limbic system down in the amygdala in that area. That tells us that when someone is triggered by strong negative emotion, that they lose the ability to use critical thinking. So my, uh, so so that that's the scientific level. From a personal level, the reason I don't like it um, is because when I get someone to make a decision uh, based on that, what's the education moment? So from my job standpoint, how do I educate you if I? If I hack you by making you feel like I call you and I say, I have your son, I'm going to kill him unless you transfer money to this account and you believe it and you transfer money and I go, oh, that was a test, you failed. What's the lesson? Don't care about your son. Don't feel fear. Don't, you know, so I need, because I'm not a bad guy, because I'm a good guy, the follow-up has to be the ability for me to give you something to act on. Now, that doesn't mean I don't talk to you about the, what the bad guys will do. I need to know that. But doing it and knowing it are two different things. Now, with that said, every emotion has a range. So fear can also be worry, a little anxiety. I don't mind using that. So telling you that your credit card may have been used is different than saying we emptied your $1 million bank account. Oh. Right? There's a that, difference that, in those two things. Is that subtle nudge then more also about building trust with somebody rather because if you go in too hot and heavy you can put people off yeah you know because it's like remember the the end title of my book is leave them feeling better for having met you right mm -hmm. so every interaction i have i want to make sure that when we're done that later on when you're thinking about me you know you're sitting there and all the emotions gone that you go yeah, that was a good conversation i really like that guy not oh my gosh i can't believe i told him all those things that's a that's embarrassing i don't want anyone ever left with that buyer's remorse Right. So that subtle nudge, like, as you put it, could get someone into the emotional spot. I need them. But later on, when they're pondering it, they're not going, wow, I, I fell for something horrible. Mm. And how do you see? Let's talk a moment about because a lot of people who will watch this are in a sales leadership role. They've got employees and a lot of them now, I think, are struggling a little bit because they're working remotely yeah. and they have a a, a care for their, their their team and I think in the in the beginning it was kind of loose because people thought oh this will be over soon but I think now people are come to the realization not alone will it not be over anytime soon 
But even when, touch wood, the pandemic's passed, people are vaccinated, that there's going to be a movement for more people to work remotely anyway. Yeah. And so therefore, what I'm thinking of is managers who want to influence their team because if they can't influence their team, their team are not going to be bought into influencing customers. And I think that there's a, 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 a ripple effect there. So I'm wondering how managers can use what you're talking about in terms of brain hacking doesn't seem appropriate in that context, but influence for sure. Yeah, we can use it. We can use it. How do they use human hacking? I, I think that's a great question. Yeah. Um, and even though I'm in a completely different field, I have to deal with this very same problem. I have... 20 people in my company and we don't have an office. They all work from home. So um, I'll, I'll tell you some of the steps. Uh, first and foremost, I think any manager that has to deal with people needs to take some time to learn about their own communication profile. Uh, that has to be the first step because it's not about other people. It's what are my strengths and weaknesses? What things do I do good and what things do I do bad? What things do I do that will make uh, my team motivated? And what things do I do that will make them feel angry and not motivated. I need to understand that not because I'm going to always say I'm the one that has to change, but I need to know where my strengths and weaknesses are so I can see where I need to improve to be a better manager. And what I find so many times is uh, people focus on someone else. So let's say you work for me, I'll go, okay, what is Paul's weaknesses? What is his worst qualities? Let me see how I can fix that. Not thinking that, well, maybe we're not compatible you're great with this person over here, but I need to make some adjustments to motivate you more. So I always said, that's the first stage. Um, second is at my company, we use disc communication profiling, which is a major portion of the book. And we use that. So every on my intranet, um, everybody's profile is there, their graph and all their descriptions. And anybody who's going to communicate with anybody, including them communicating with me, they can go read those profiles before they have that meeting. And I do that every time. So if I'm going to meet with you and I'm like, okay, we got a little problem I got to work on. I'm going to go read that section that tells me how I can motivate you. What's your work on points. And then I'm going to compare that with mine. And I'm going to actually literally plan out in my head, what's the way I need to do this conversation in order to get the maximum effect possible. And that doesn't change because we're remote. It's even, even more so important because we are remote. And then for me, I always say to my team, we have to be on video for meetings because you miss so much when you, you know, you can't see. And for me too. So like if you and I were not on camera right now, it, I may have, I may have the um, temptation to look at an email, to mm -hmm. check a message because you can't see me. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that someone may ping me and I may be like, Oh, let me check this. You know, yeah. He can't see anyway, and I'll just pay attention. I'll listen. But the fact that I know you're looking at me and I'm looking at you, I can't be over here doing this, right? So I know that when I meet with my team and we're seeing each other, that we're both focused. And that also tells me, how are you taking this in? Do I see anger on your face? Do I see you getting uncomfortable? Are you moving more like you're not really liking what I'm saying? And I can now move on that nonverbal feedback to make sure that we're communicating properly. Yeah. Speaking of brain hacking, I have to tell you a quick story. Uh, so when I'm in a class and maybe I'll have 15, 20 people on screen and so I'm, I only see little thumbnails. And so therefore it's very hard for me, particularly <laughs> when I'm here and I'm, could be talking about disc for example, and 
it's very hard for me to read the body language in those because the yes. thumbnails are so small. But it was funny because one day I was editing, the, I had recorded the class and I was editing it afterwards. So editing, I can zoom in and look at individual faces. And it was amazing to see what each one was doing. Some were paying attention, some were reading yeah. stuff. So speaking of brain hacking, what I said to the last class I started with, I, I told them this, which is true, that bit was true. And I said, I can zoom in and those who are wearing glasses, I can see exactly what they're looking at on their right, screen. You can see the reflection. So I said, look, I said, I said, if you're going to be looking at hotbodies.com, that's okay, just turn your camera off. <laughs> it wasn't a single camera off for the entire class. <laughs> That's terrible, but funny. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, no, so uh, where were we? We were talking about this, and I wanted to go back. You said step one, change yourself. and that, that, But that requires a huge amount of self-awareness. How do I get that? How do I become self-aware so that I know where my real weakness, my blind spots are? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first it takes, and this, this always sounds so like, uh, like platitudes and you know, that, that old sales phrase, like, you know, you're just saying things to say things. And I'm not one of those raw, raw motivation guys, but this is real. You have to be willing. If you don't have a willing spirit to make a change, then this is not for you because it's just not going to work because it's going to be hard. Introspection is hard. Um, and, and then the second is you kind of got to be, you, this is going to sound contradictory, but you kind of got to be a little easy on yourself because you're going to take that disc test. You're going to read those things. And now for me, I have to go because I know I'm not perfect. Next time I'm in any interaction and I see, because I'm a really high D, right? So when I see, I get a little aggressive and it goes bad afterward when I'm analyzing, I go, oh, that's why. Yeah, I see what I did there. And, yeah. it, and, and it takes time to go, that wasn't Paul's fault, right? Even if you had a part in it, right? Not to go, I see what Paul did wrong there. It's what did I do to... to to what did I do to add to that argument? Mm. What part did I play in that disagreement? Mm. Not what could he have done to fix this? Why didn't he listen to me? Why was he this person? And that takes time and energy to do that. No one should expect that to be, well, I did the test, so I'm perfect now, right? Nope. Years on doing this and I, I'm much better at self-reflection, but I still, you know, I'm not, not 100% perfect. Mm. Well, that, you, that has to be the first step in it. Have you done any kind of 360s? Yeah, um, <laughs> quite a few. So in my my in my profile, my D is like 99%. Mm. And younger times, it would be more like uh, one, one of my friends um, described me, and this was like seven or eight years ago. Um, there's an anthill full of us, and I come in and throw a firebomb and then leave. <laughs> And that used to be like, you know, somebody did something wrong, come in and like, ah, oh, what's going on? And, you know, and then seeing how many times that that did not work, I went and, 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 and doing it wrong, saying, why are they not listening? Why are they not, you know? And then I remember I used to say this statement, you know, I'm, I'm a decent boss. I pay them good. They should. Ooh. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever had a therapist or anything. The word should is a, it's like they... My therapist would say, man, you just should all over yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, parent, yeah. and it is, and it is because you, you're now, you're, you're now putting this pressure where you're saying, well, I, I pay you, I gave you a bonus. I'm a decent guy. You should then do X, Y, Z. Uh-uh. If I pay you, all you should do is come to work and give me your 40 hours. That's it. That, you know, you should follow the rules. That's it. There's no extra 
I'm not paying you to be my friend. I'm not paying you to be, you know, my buddy. You come and do your job and that's what uh, you owe me. So it made me realize if I want extra, I'm going to have to give extra. And that means emotionally. So it started me to realize I can't be the firebomb in the anthill uh, just because there was a fire somewhere else. Mm. Fire and fire together doesn't make calmness. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I realized I quickly had to come in and, I, and it, the change was me. That mm. doesn't mean I'm perfect again, but it's more now, okay, there's a problem. I go to the team and I'm like, let's discuss it. Why did this happen? How did that happen? Help me understand it before any action is taken and that that's been a huge 360 for me because now i have like i said 20 people in my company we're more like a family than we are um like work you know workmates like we joke we laugh we drink together on zoom you know we hang out where where we're we we look forward to being together at work and i don't go to work on oh man i gotta talk to so and so today i look forward to being there and they do too and they all tell me that yeah. When you did your 360s, what did you learn about yourself that surprised you or shocked you? Um, whew, wow, the list can be quite huge. Um, I, I think, you know, more on what I mentioned before, one of the big things I learned is that I had expectations that weren't realistic on people for things that I deemed that I was doing really good, like paying people a decent salary, giving them bonuses every year, um, never demanding from them things that I was not willing to do. Like if I expected you to work a 12 hour day because we were busy, I would also do that. I wouldn't be, you know, sipping martinis at 5 p.m. and asking you to work till seven. Um, you know, I, 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 I was felt all that. And then the biggest maybe self-reflection was um, I can't do that. I can't expect people to take the company as seriously as I do because it's mine. It's my company. You know, it's kind of like one of the realizations that, that happened to me is I have this little piece of cloth that I carried in, in my wallet that my daughter sewed me. The first thing when she wanted to learn how to sew, we got her a sewing machine. I'm, a, I'm, the, I'm the sewer in the family, so I showed her how to sew. And the first thing she ever sewed me was this little tiny piece of cloth that says Amaya loves you, little heart on it. And she's now a, a teenager and I, she made that when she was five. I still carried in my wallet. And the realization for me, that piece of dirty old cloth has got an invaluable sum of worth to it. You can offer me all of those cameras behind you. I'm not trading you for that piece of cloth. It doesn't matter. But to you, that piece of cloth means absolutely nothing because there's no emotional content to it. And maybe with the story, you go, oh, that's cute, but it still doesn't mean anything to you. And you wouldn't trade me all those cameras for that cloth because to you, there's no value. And I had to get that in my head that the things that I thought were so, so valuable that I was doing to other people aren't there yet. So I can't have an expectation that they're going to see it the same way just because I do. And that was a big learning lesson for me. I wonder how many sales leaders watching this could identify that that piece of cloth metaphorically speaking for each one of their staff the thing that they wouldn't trade for all the tea in china the thing that's most precious to them most meaningful to them whether that's a piece of cloth or a memory a hobby experience whatever a relationship doesn't matter but there's something and we think we know our staff could we answer those questions? That's a great thought. I, yeah. I'll give you a business example of this because I think this is so applicable. 
uh, a few years ago, I had a company come to me that wanted to buy my organization. And they were throwing big numbers at me. I mean, numbers that would be life altering for me personally. Um, and I remember in one of our final meetings, we were getting really close to an agreement. I, I said to them, I said, um, what happens to my, my freedom? I said, right now, I go to the UK once a year. Now, of course, not with COVID, but I go to the UK once a year, I do training. And then my family comes over and we take a month and we go to Scotland, Ireland, Europe, Italy, and we just travel. That's what we do. And I don't have to answer to anyone because it's my company and I make sure my team's ready and I give them the same opportunity. You guys want to travel? Go ahead, do it. You know, let's just schedule it. So we're all good. I said, but what happens when I sell this and I have to work for you for a number of years? Can I still do that? And they went, oh, well, we'll talk about it. It may not be as many. So I actually came home. I talked to my wife about it. I went back to them and I said, guys, I would be willing. And I actually said this, like, this is the worst negotiation tactic ever. I'd be willing for you to make a smaller offer to me and give me my freedom. Mm. And they wouldn't do it. Now, what that reason I tell the story is what I noticed at that point is that they didn't understand what I valued. Mm. And what I valued wasn't the dollar signs. Mm. What I valued was my freedom to be with my family for that time, because that was more important than mm. eight zeros in my bank account. It didn't matter. Yeah. Right. And if you can, what you just said is just so powerful. If a manager sitting here listening to this could find out what is that thing that your sales guy values more than the paycheck, more than the status and the spotlight, you find out that and you use that as a motivator, you will have a devoted team. I have a guy pre COVID on the team. Um, every Thursday night, he played poker with his friends. And all he asked was two things. Every Thursday night, don't bother me unless it, the company's burning down. And twice a week in the middle of the day, he had a trainer come to his house and he worked out. For those two hours and my poker night, can you please not schedule anything? As long as I stuck to that, he loved everything I did because it was I showed that I valued the things that were important to him, right? He, he, he had a, a time that was like, you know, earlier in the day where he's like, he wanted to spend a little time with his son playing a video game. Mm. I said, take that hour off, go be with your kid. When you show your employees that you value the things for them mm. and that guy will work till 12 in the morning, sometimes doing stuff on servers if I need him to, because he knows that when he needs his time for his family, no problem. Take it. Yeah. You know, it's so obvious when you say it. And <laughs> the thing is, it, it's so, it's weird because it's so very rare to see it. And I'll give you an example of this, is Israel, Pfizer vaccine. People are looking at Israel, they're way ahead of anybody else on the planet in terms of the vac vaccinations. They got ahead of the curve, they got commitments from, from Pfizer that companies like USA, Europe could not get. And they did it for one simple reason. They appealed to what Pfizer wanted the most and it wasn't money. Pfizer knew they were going to get money for the vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Pfizer wanted data. And they said, we'll be your, your, uh, your live lab. Yeah. And we'll gather the data. We'll give you that feedback because everything across the planet, everything's on an emergency footing. And, you know, the actual vaccine trials don't end till 2023 officially. So they needed this live laboratory. And, and, and Israel played a blinder and said, we'll be that for you. And That's a that's wonderful it. example. 
See, when you find out what the most important thing is to a person and you truly offer it, not fake, you know, that's again, not malicious, like you truly offer it. Honestly, if that company had come back and said, you know what, Chris, you can have all the time you want for holidays with your family. As long as when you're here, you're hundred percent devoted to the new company, man, I would have signed that contract and maybe wouldn't even be talking right now. You know, I would have been working for this other company. All they needed to do was offer me what I valued. And I love that story with Israel because that is so true. So many people think that what I value, if I offer it to you, then you'll come aboard. So if I love money and I start offering you money that you'll just listen to me and you'll do what I want. And I find so many times that it's, again, it's that self-awareness. It's saying just because I value this doesn't mean that you're gonna. So I can't look at it and say, you're going to do whatever I want if I offer you what's valuable to me. Yeah, yeah. And let's go back. By the way, you did say something a moment ago, and I heard it, and I thought, I need to come back to that. Because it was just one of the, it was a stream of consciousness, and I went, oh, hang on a second. This is a high D individual who has just said, I'm the sower in the family. <laughs> let's just stop there. <laughs> I need okay. to understand what's behind that. Yeah. Let's just say, I'm the sower of the family. Yeah. You know, if you were an introverted guy and... <laughs> maybe you know I, I don't know i don't know but you just okay don't i can answer this a, a sore type I, I can i can answer this so three my my uh grandparents on my mom's side and my uh one of my grandparents on my dad's side all immigrated from italy to america and in american italian households when you grow up all men must learn to cook sew and iron your clothes before you leave the house now you're That's told why they never leave to learn their forties. I, I think I think so because mom mom does those things for you. But then you're told you need to know these things. But you know you you get a good wife and she'll do those things for you. Now don't say that in these days and ages, right? Because you get you get nailed to a tree. But point is is that when you're in the seventies you know, when I was growing up, you learned all these things. So you had to learn those three things. So I knew how to sew zippers and buttons and patches on the clothes. I knew how to iron and uh, and I knew how to cook. So. Uh, when I got married, you know, my wife wasn't a great sewer. You know, she didn't know how to sew things too well. And I'm not a seamstress. I can't make a dress or clothes or anything, but you know, I can, I could sew clothes and my daughter wanted to learn. And it was like, well, who's going to teach her? Well, that has to be yeah. me. So you, I wondered, I had, I had envisaged the maybe that you were in the air force or something and you were <laughs> responsible for repairing parachutes or something. <laughs> that would be a much uh, cooler story, but no, 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 yeah. that's sewing patches yeah. and dresses and yeah. Pants. And there's a wonderful leather industry in Italy as well, where a lot of people sell leather goods. And yes, yeah, it's pretty good. I wanted to come back though to the disc because you're clearly a proponent of disc. And for my understanding, and and I wouldn't have your practical sense of it, is that disc is all about amygdala hijacking, and that the D for people who are maybe not familiar with it is the the dominant character, bottom line oriented is all about feeling in control. I, I think all, if you look at the four types in DISC, they're all about, as I understand it, about feeling safe. So the, the D looks at the world going, if, I, if I'm in control, I feel safe. The I looks at the world goes, if everybody likes me, I feel safe. The S, if I don't make mistakes, I, I'm safe. The, the, the C, if I follow procedure, policy, etc., I'm safe. And, um, it, it's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way in terms of amygdala hijacking. That that really that's what it is. You're when when you communicate in a way and behave in a way that's consistent with how people want to be treated. It is a kind of a direct line to the amygdala, and I'd never looked at it that way before. 
And, and think of it too, that our brains reward us with chemicals, not only oxytocin, but dopamine. So when you feel good, your brain releases those two chemicals and it looks for the reason, right? Mm. So if we think about um, just how like our nonverbal, like our limbic systems work, right? So we, we meet someone for the first time and our limbic system makes a snap judgment of them. And it's based on some things. And when I say attractiveness, I'm not talking about sexuality. I'm just talking about, we look at a person and we go, are you symmetrical? You know, does your face look trustworthy? Do you look like at a, a person that I can get along with? And so I look at you and I say, yeah, I like this guy, right? He doesn't look creepy. He looks nice. He looks uh, like a handsome guy. And now my, my neocortex does only the thing that does one thing. And it just looks for proof that I'm right. So this is crazy, right? Because if I make a different judgment of you, if I say, I don't like this guy, he looks creepy. Now my neocortex is looking for why you're creepy. Those cameras, I bet they're hidden cameras. And those books, I bet some of them are creeper books. He stole you know? them. He stole yeah, them. He stole them. He stole those cameras. Yeah. Look at that. He's got a he's got an American motorcycle up there. What does he think he's doing? He's an Irish guy, you know. Like, and I would do all that, but I like you. And I go, oh, the dude likes Harleys, man. I, I can get along with him. I used to ride, you know, and stuff like that. And now my neocortex is looking for all those things. So um, you blend that with communicating with someone the right way. So if I, if you see me the first time and your brain goes, I like this guy. And now I communicate with you on your level, chemical soup, your brain's just going, I love this guy and I can do anything. Right. And, and you learn how to do that through human hacking. Right. So for me, it'd be pretexting. Like if I was going to approach you, Am I dressed looking the way that you would expect me to dress? Um, do, you know, do I have a smile on my face? Do I look non-aggressive? So that way I know that I can get your, your limbic system and neocortex in the right place. And then if I quickly assess you and say, well, I think he's an I, I'm going to communicate with you that way. And now I do that. Oof, now your brain can't help but be feeling good about me. I have hijacked you. All these chemicals are getting released and we're buddies. Mm. Chris, before I let you go, I do want to talk to you a little bit about something you said earlier. You said you got 20 staff who are all working remotely. Uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about, because I think this is relevant to everybody, is some of the challenges you've experienced with that and how you've overcome them in terms of making, maintaining that connection, that bond with the team where there's still that high trust, high productive environment. Yeah. Um... So for me, it, it comes back to, uh, and again, I hate to keep harping on it, but I use DISC like it's a, like it's a Bible. So I, I literally, before we have to do reviews or talk to an employee, I look at their profile to ensure that when we're communicating as a team, and I do this with my, my COO, right? And my, um, my senior team leader. So uh, Ryan and Maxie, we get together and we look at people's profiles and we say, okay, you got to go talk to so-and-so. How should we do this effectively? And we'll even say, which one of the three of us as management should go. And that way we're always looking at our staff as how do we win it? Not how do we get compliance, mm. right? Cause we don't want, compliance can be easy. Just you know, offer punishment if you don't comply. Uh, that's manipulative, right? But when we want a team that is willing to fall on the sword for the company, you have to look at the whole picture. So for me, some of the, the challenges we're realizing that I'm not always the right man for the job. That, that was hard, right? Because it's like, well, this is my baby. I own the company. Of course I, and realizing, you know, sometimes I got to step back and I'm not the right guy to take care of this. Let someone else do it. 
that took a little ego suspension on my part, right? To realize that um, other people are much better at certain jobs than I am. And that's okay. That's really okay, right? Because then there's going to be jobs where I excel at them. Uh, also, delegation. Uh, th there was a, and I, I still struggle with this, but there's a thing like when I see people not doing things the way I want them done or as quick, I'm quick to jump in and say, I'll just take care of it. And learning that delegation takes time and that Ooh. the years it took me to get where I'm in now, Ooh. it may take someone a little longer to get to a, a spot where they could take over a responsibility. But being willing to delegate that and spend the time to train someone to do it right is so validating for them and for me. And just recently, I've offloaded some tasks that I've been taking care of for years. And I literally feel like there's this weight that's just gone. These things that were taking me hours of a week or a month, no longer on my plate. Mm. feels wonderful, man. Mm. It just feels great. Yeah, and it's interesting. And again, the, you mentioned the ego suspension, which is difficult to do. Sometimes Real when come, somebody comes in to do those, you look back and you go, yeah, they're doing them better than I ever did them. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating, fascinating. Um, Chris, if people want to get in contact with you, I wanted to just put up your book there again. The, by the way, I'm curious, what prompted you to write the book? Yeah, so um, I have a class, a four-day class I teach called Advanced Practical Social Engineering. I wrote it with the idea that it would be security people that would come. Uh, I've been training it for a decade. Um, about five years ago, I started to notice, because I always ask students, hey, why are you here? What do you hope to get out of this? And I started noticing I had salespeople, I had psychologists, I had teachers, I had stay-at-home parents. And I'm like, why, why are you here? You know, I had this one, I remember I taught this class in Ireland, I taught it in Dublin, and I had, a, I had two sales guys there uh, from Germany. And I'm like, why are you in this class? And they said, oh, I, a friend of ours took it from a different company that's in IT and said, this is perfect for you, go take it. So I started to realize that the things I were teaching were not just applicable to my security field. That, of course, made me start testing that theory more and more. And over five or six years, the culmination of all of that was this book. It came to me that I needed to write this because not everyone's going to spend the money to come to this class that looks like it's just for IT people, but the skills are so useful. And like you said, Dale Carnegie's book is amazing. It was written in 1932. So I said, what things can we do now that, that we can't, couldn't have applied from a 1932 writing? but not to say his is bad because it's not, it's still one of pivotal book in most people's life, but how can we enhance this for 2021, 2020? How can we do that? So it came about based on that, just I, you know, these skills are applicable in everyday life. We're seeing human hacking happen on a global scale in a malicious way. How can we turn this around for the better? Chris has been absolutely fascinating talk to you. I have enjoyed every second of it. I wish we could talk all day about this topic. It's really, really- Time flies when you have a good conversation. <laughs> 100%, 100%. way for people to get in contact with you? Okay, I have a couple things uh, since you asked and thank you for doing that. Um, for the book, you can go to humanhackingbook.com. Now, if you go there, sign up for the resources page if you bought the book because there's free stuff on there like downloads and other things that will help enhance the reading of the book. Um, in March, we have a conference, the Human Hacking Conference, and it's not about security. It is literally world expert teaching you how to change your brain for the better. Uh, that's humanhackingconference.com. And me personally, LinkedIn or um, Human Hacker on Twitter. And uh, people reach out to me all the time. I usually try to be very responsive when they do. So 
I'd be more than happy for any of those methods. Come hang out, see me, we'll chat. We're going to leave it there, Chris. Thank you very much for being my guest today. It's been absolutely fascinating.